0: Let's continue to worship as we open God's Word, and we are in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We started just a couple of months ago in Romans chapter 5 and are working our way through chapter 8 leading up to Christmas. So this sermon series is going to take us all the way through Christmas. And I've outlined uh, where Paul is in the argument of his letter every time I start a sermon, but I'm starting another sermon, so I'm going to do it again. Um, Because I want to help us see the context and the flow of his argument. The first two and a half or three chapters, Paul lays out the universal condemning power of our sin. None of us are with excuse before God. We are all before him condemned because of our sin, our idolatry, our unfaithfulness to him. Um, sin's reach is as far as humanity's reach is. We are all universally condemned. Then in chapter three, he turns a corner and for the next two and a half chapters, he lays out the universal widespread power of grace. God's grace to justify us from our sin and redeem us in Christ so that God no longer sees us through our sin, but sees us as right, as righteous, as justified before him. And it's all because of Jesus. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived, and then he died the death that you and I deserved. And all of this truth puts the apostle seemingly in a moral dilemma. In a moral dilemma. That's what he imagines his listeners to be thinking. If God is more gracious than we are sinful, then when people experience God's grace, they're just gonna keep on sinning because you can't out-sin God's grace, which is exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so as we've been talking about the last several weeks, Paul asks this rhetorical question. He asks this imagined question in that overview slide. Mike, you see it? It has Romans 6, 1, yep. So he asks in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, "'What then are we to continue in sin "'so that grace may abound?' "'And he answers the question, by no means.'" And he explains it in terms of our union with Christ and his death and resurrection. Jesus died to sin, we've died to sin with him, and we've been raised to walk in newness of life. By no means shall we sin so that grace may abound.'" And then he sort of reverses tack all over again in verse 15, asks a similar question. Are we to sin because we are not under law? And we looked at this last week. Paul again answers the question, by no means. We're slaves to righteousness. We're slaves to God. So we are not to sin because we are under grace and not under law. But this reality of God's law get, gets Paul's mind thinking, and he wants to flesh this out even more, because for his Jewish audience, which primarily his audience probably was Jewish, the law of God defined so much about their life. And so he's going to spend six more verses, and really even more than that, all of chapter seven, talking about our relation to the law of God. Now that we're new covenant believers, now that the law of God has been fulfilled in Jesus, what is our relationship with the law of God? Because God's law defined the ethical and moral life of God's people for so long. So he's going to spend a few more verses laying this out. So let's read these verses, and then we'll dive into the specifics. Romans chapter, six, uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage." who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the activities of ministry that Meg and I have been a part of over the last several years is often referred to as premarital counseling. You've probably heard of this or done this before. It's when an older couple will spend some intentional time mentoring and teaching and preparing a younger, engaged couple for marriage. And we're often asked to do this because the engaged couple has this sense, we are about to enter into a new kind of relationship. We are about to enter into a new era of our lives, and it's going to change everything. And so we need some help. Preparing for this, getting ready for these massive adjustments. So earlier this year, Meg and I were walking through this process with a couple, and we asked them to bring up a recent conflict or argument that they'd had because we're going to try to teach them a process for working through such things. So we asked them, tell us about a fight you had recently. And so the future bride spoke up. She said that her fiancé had recently purchased a $4,000 snowmobile without letting her know. He didn't say anything to her about it and just kind of one day on his own out of nowhere purchases this $4,000 machine. So as you can maybe imagine, the future bride was pretty disturbed about this because she's looking into her future and thinking, what have I gotten myself into? Impulsive shopper but this was a perfect opportunity for us to reaffirm for the future groom brother you are about to enter into a new kind of relationship a new era of your life and it changes everything including the number of people you need to consult before you make a major purchase It used to be one, yourself, but in marriage, the two are one, and so you've got to include her. To fly solo, to think only of yourself, to revert back to the old way of life, to the old way of doing things. But marriage is a new covenant, a new relationship, and we're called to live into the newness of this relationship and not go back the old way? Well, this, I think, is a helpful picture of what's taken place in the life of God's people. In ages past, God made promises to a man named Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. And these promises form the basis for God's purpose to save his people. And then, through a man named Moses, God provided his law. God's people, Abraham's descendants, the Jews, God's people received God's law. And these laws shaped the religious and cultural and moral lives of God's people so that they would live as he intended. This era of God relating with his people through his law is known as the Old Covenant or Old Testament when the law expressed God's intentions for his people. But what happens? Did God's old covenant people fulfill God's law and live as God intended by obeying the law? By and large, no. The story of the Old Testament, by and large, is a tragedy. In the book of Joshua, the people don't purge idolatry from the land. In the book of Judges, there is countless amounts of compromise. In 1 Samuel, Saul is an ignorant, cowardice, murderous king. In 2 Samuel, King David is an adulterous husband. In 1 King, King Solomon takes 700 wives. King Rehoboam listens to foolish advisors, and God's people are split in two. There's a civil war in the promised land, during which time the law of God is literally lost and forgotten until King Josiah. So God in his justice deports the entire nation of Israel to Babylon. The pagan nation destroys them, then there are some rebuilding efforts under Ezra and Nehemiah, but it's nothing like what God originally intended. That's the story of the Old Testament. God's people ultimately failed to live out God's law. And so, in the fullness of time, God provided a new covenant, a new way, a better way for God's people to relate with him. And God himself showed up in order to initiate this covenant. Jesus, the God-man, inaugurated the new covenant, the New Testament era. But... Even though God's people had this new kind of relationship, they were inclined to go back to the old way. Much like my soon-to-be-married friend, they weren't living into the newness of their relationship. So listen to a couple of ways the apostle describes how the Jews were relating with the law or the old covenant, even after Jesus had come. So this is from Romans chapter 17. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 17, and verse 23. Paul writes in 2.17, he says, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law. So you can see here that many Jews were relying on the law and relying on their law-keeping to save them to justify them before God. But as Paul explains, we can't rely on the law to save us because we can't keep the law, at least not to the degree that God requires. And so we need to rely on the grace of Jesus, the new covenant grace of Jesus. And he refers later to, in verse 23, those who boast in the law and yet dishonor God's law by breaking it. So you see, there was a pride, a boastfulness that many Jews had in the law. Instead of boasting in and centering their lives around the grace of Jesus, they continue to live under the old way of the law, which ultimately condemns us because we break the law. And so in today's passage, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, the apostle is calling us into this new way of relating with God in light of the old way of relating with God. How many of us are hung up in the old way, thinking it's still necessary, thinking it's better? But what we're going to see are three truths about us in relation to the old covenant law. Three truths about new covenant believers in Jesus in relation to the old covenant law. First, Paul is going to say, we are released from the law. We are released from the law. So look once more at verses one through four. The apostle writes, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who are under the law, or, uh, who know the law, rather? In other words, I'm talking to you, Jews. I'm talking to you guys who know the law. Do you not know that the law is binding on a person? Only as long as he lives. Now, what does he mean by the law is binding only as long as we live? Well, he's going to explain in verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while her husband lives. But if the woman's husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So Paul is drawing an analogy between us and how we relate to the old covenant with a woman and how she relates with the law of marriage. He says, as long as the woman's husband is alive, then the woman is bound by law to her husband. But if her husband dies, she is no longer bound. She is released from the law of marriage when her husband dies. This was true in the ancient world, and it's true today. Marriage is only until death do we part. After that, it's over. Death ends the law of marriage. However, verse 3, the wife can be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. So if her husband is alive, then the law of marriage still binds the woman. And she is liable to the law's curse if she takes another man. If her husband is alive, then the law can condemn her, adulteress. But, second half of verse 3, if her husband dies, she is released from the law and she is free to marry another man and not be called an adulteress. There is no condemnation for her whose husband has died. She is free from the law of marriage and can happily, freely marry another. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You see, we were bound by the law and its righteous requirements, and bound as we were by that law, we were liable to the laws cursed. The law required that we not speak falsely, that we not covet, and each one of us has. The law required that we love one another, not steal, not hurt, not deceive, but we've each failed to do that. And so we're each liable to the curse of the law, unless someone dies in our place. And that is exactly what happened on the cross of Christ. When Jesus died, he suffered the penalty for our sin, he suffered the curse of the law, and as such, We are not bound by the law. As Paul will later say in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have died to the law through the death of Jesus. The law has lost its power to condemn us. We are released from the law. I wonder if you've ever gotten the news that a friend or a family member has cheated on their spouse. Your jaw drops. You feel revolted. You want to cry. You want to curse. Because this person was bound by the law of marriage. Their spouse is still alive. The law is still in effect. And yet they broke it. But friends, here's the truth. That is all of us. We have all whored after false gods. We have all cheated on God. We were made to be faithful to him. We were made to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we haven't. We are all adulterers and we will suffer the curse of God's law. Unless someone dies in our place. And that is exactly what happened through the broken, bruised, pierced, crushed, crucified body of Jesus, the law's curse has been exhausted. Through faith, we are united to Jesus and we are united to the death of Jesus. And so we have died to the law. We have been released from the law. And so friend, fellow sinner, I urge you to trust in Jesus. Trust in the death of Jesus and be released from the law be released from the curse of the law and come under grace there is no fear of judgment here there is no fear of death here we are free we are alive we are released from that which can condemn us the law three truths about us in relation to the law we are released from the law and now we are we belong to Christ we are released from the law, and now we belong to Christ. So look at verse 4 again. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the dead body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So Jesus' death not only released us from the law, it bound us to himself. So you remember the analogy in the previous verses. If a woman's husband dies, then she is free from the law of marriage and so she can belong to another man. Just so in Jesus, we have died to the law and we are free from the law so that we can belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And the whole purpose of this Was that we might bear fruit for God. In other words, now that we belong to Jesus, we might live a fruitful life, a holy life, bearing fruit, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and so forth. Paul's point is just that, uh, Paul's point is that just because we're released from the law doesn't mean we're lawless. That was the concern of so many of his Jewish listeners. Paul, if you're going around telling people they're not under law, they're under grace, if you're going around telling people they're released from the law, then they're going to be lawless. But Paul says it's just the opposite. We are lawful, we are fruitful, we become like the one we belong to when we belong to Christ. We become Christ-like. And this, again, corresponds really well with the analogy of marriage. When we come into this world... We are naturally dependent upon our parents. Our world kind of centers around our parents. They're sort of the center of gravity holding our lives together. Everything centers around them and their direction for our lives. But when we get married, we leave and cleave. We leave our parents as the primary priority in our lives, and we cleave to another Our spouse, this is a new kind of relationship, a fruitful kind of relationship, very often but not always, bearing the fruit of children. And so it is with our new way of relating with God. We are no longer bound by the law. We are released from the law. The law of Moses is no longer the defining feature of God's people. Instead, now we belong to Jesus and we bear fruit for him. You know, for many of us, it can be hard to leave behind our old life patterns. And sometimes we still define ourselves by who we were before Christ. But this is like marrying someone and then returning to live with your family and moving back into your childhood bedroom. That family no longer defines you. So why keep living as if it does? You have been joined to Jesus, and he now should be the one who defines your reality, your identity. So let's not define our lives by our old sinful lifestyle, or look to the law and our obedience to the law to define who you are. Good boy, Christian boy, moral boy, conservative guy. Let's not look to the law and our ability to keep the law to define who we are because we can never be good enough. We can never be moral enough. We can never be conservative enough. We can never hold it all together long enough. The law will ultimately condemn us if we try to define ourselves by our obedience, by our purity, by our righteousness. It's never enough. If we try to define ourselves in that way, and we will be condemned. And even though we may look squeaky clean on the outside, on the inside we'll know. That little voice in our head will tell us, you are condemned. It's never enough, CT. It's never enough. So the apostle is calling us into this new way of relating with God. You are no longer under the law. You are under grace. God sees you through the lens of grace. God sees you, his bride, through the lens of a loving, affectionate, gracious, excited groom. That's how he sees you. Not through the eyes of a judge. God's judgment has been exhausted on the cross. And so let's live into the newness of this relationship where God sees us and we live under grace. Jesus defines our identity, not our obedience to the law. Three truths about how we relate to the law of God. We are released from the law of God. We now belong to Christ. And finally, this is the kicker. We serve by the Spirit. We serve By the Spirit. Look once more at verse 5. Before Paul mentions the Spirit, he's going to contrast that with our old life before him. Verse 5. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So Paul refers to our life before Christ our life before the Spirit as life in the flesh. Meaning our sinful passions, our bodily lusts dominated us. It's not that there's anything inherently wrong with our physical fleshly bodies. Our bodies are good and God's creation. The problem was sin twisted our bodily desires into lusts. Sin twisted our ambition into greed, our longings into covetousness, and so forth. That's life in the flesh. And the apostle actually says that the law aroused our sinful passions. The law of God actually stimulated us to sin against God. And we'll talk more about this dynamic next week in the second half of chapter 7, but it's worth noting here, that's how deeply broken we are as humans. God's law actually stimulates us to break God's law. We hear that we are not supposed to lie, and it actually causes us to lie. We hear that we're not supposed to take our neighbor's spouse, and it actually arouses the passion to do so. That's how warped we are in our sinful nature. And that's how inadequate the law is to save us. You try to get saved by the law, you're going to become more of a lawbreaker. That's the logic of Paul's argument here. The law doesn't save us from sin. The law arouses sin in us. And so we need a deeper, more powerful, more internal work of God. And that is exactly what has been provided for us. Look at verse 6. He says, now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul is answering his critics here, right? His critics said, Paul, if you tell people they're released from the law, then they're going to be servants of sin. They have no law. They're going to serve sin. Paul says, by no means. When we are released from the law through the death of Jesus, then we serve in the new way of the Spirit. In the old life, we were living in the flesh, dominated by sinful desires, but now God does a work in us by the power of the Spirit so that we can serve Him, so that we can bear fruit, the fruit of love, a life of holiness, a new life empowered by the Spirit that we're called into. Max Lucado is an author, a Christian author. He's a pastor in Houston. And he tells of one woman's journey that really mirrors this whole reality. I'm going to read it at length. Quote, Once upon a time, there was a woman living with a very controlling and manipulative husband. And so every day before the man went to work, he would write a long list of all the chores that he expected the woman to do before he returned home. Chores like vacuum the floor, wash the dishes, iron the clothes, walk the dog, fix dinner, and so forth. And if the woman did not do those jobs every day to his satisfaction, the husband would verbally abuse her, call her lazy and useless, sometimes prohibit her from leaving the house. So every day, the poor woman worked tirelessly, fearfully to please her husband, hoping that she did everything on the list and did it to his satisfaction. But sadly, she could rarely satisfy him, and daily, she was scolded for some failure. Well, eventually, this woman left her husband and was soon married to a lovely and caring man. The man worked a job in the city while she kept the house and managed their home business. And her new husband never wrote a horrid list of all the things he expected her to do while he was at work. He never complained about what she had or had not done. They would graciously work out their differences with give and take. But many years later, one day, while working around the house, the woman found one of the lists that her ex-husband had written for her. One of the old lists, complete with dozens of chores on it. And she couldn't help but cry as she noticed that she was still doing all those things, still doing the same routine, still working hard to keep a nice home. However, now she was no longer motivated by a fear of abuse, but instead she was spurned on by a happy devotion to her new husband, and their new life together. Friends, in Christ, God wants to lead you into a whole new life. And He wants to bear fruit through you the fruit of righteousness, holiness, love. But God knows this fruit is not produced by sheer obedience, just muscling it out. Just following the rules. It's not produced by a view of God that sees him as a taskmaster. Just giving us rules to follow that we can never live up to. It's impossible to produce the fruit of eternal life when we define our lives by the law. Because the law only reveals and empowers our law breaking. Trying to produce the fruit of eternal life from a life marked by sin and the law is like trying to get fruit from a tree that is poisoned and dead. It won't happen. When you and I need to get fruit from a tree that is healthy and alive and is correctly rooted in rich soil, and for Paul, this comes when our lives belong to Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we are made alive, we are given the Spirit, and the Spirit now empowers a new way of bearing fruit for God. And so we must ask ourselves, is your life marked by the Spirit of God or by the law of God? Do you walk by the Spirit or are you living in the flesh dominated by sinful passions? Are you relying on the Spirit or are you relying on your law keeping to save you? Because the Spirit is the key. To new life in Christ, for it is the Spirit who not only joins us to Christ, but empowers us to a new life of service, where we bear fruit in Christ. And all of this ultimately comes from belonging to Jesus, which is the starting point for all of us. And so maybe you're realizing today that a relationship with Jesus does not define your life that you've been joined to something or someone else. Perhaps you feel like you've been defining your life by following all the rules instead of being empowered by the Spirit. Paul invites you today to recognize that those ways of living don't produce the fruit of eternal life in the end. And if we define our lives by anything except for Jesus, it only produces the fruit of death. The fruit of eternal life ultimately comes when we belong to Christ because belonging to Christ leads to bearing fruit for Christ. And the way we belong to Christ comes not through our efforts, not through our rule keeping, it comes simply by putting our faith in Him, by trusting that His death pays the penalty for your sin and frees you from the law. That His resurrection power gives us an entirely new life that the Spirit of God marks. And so today, I want to invite you to put your faith in Jesus and begin to experience the incredible fruit of eternal life. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Father in heaven, we've gathered this morning to sit under your word to together open our hearts to the sacred scriptures and so we ask God that the same spirit that had inspired those scriptures would now speak directly to our hearts God confront us, encourage us, challenge us we've meditated on Romans 7, as we've heard the good news, speak to us, God, the word we need to hear and more and more conform us to your grace. Draw us into life under grace. God, for those of us who rely on the law, who boast in the law, those of us who rely on our good works, our good deeds, our righteousness, those of us who maybe we wouldn't say it with our words, but internally we boast in being a good person. I pray, Father, that you would humble us and teach us the truth about ourselves that before your law, we are an adulteress. We are a cheater. And we stand ready to be condemned by your law. Father, I pray as we stand before the righteous requirements of your law, we would be rightly humbled that we would begin to seek you for grace, and God, thank you for the cross from which flows an everlasting stream of grace. I pray for each one of us, God, that we would be smothered in your mercy, and our lives would begin to be defined By him who is our head. By him who is the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. And his grace and his righteousness and his love. God, draw us deeper into this new way of the spirit. Open our hearts, God. Speak to us, conform us for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray.